Well, welcome again to Trinity Grace. So glad that you're here with us this morning. For those of you I haven't yet met, my name is Michael, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace Church. And you need to know that over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we are in a sermon series on the life of Peter. And Peter is a really interesting character in the New Testament. Peter was one of Jesus's first disciples. He was one of Christ's closest friends. And as you follow along with the life of Peter, you see at times that he is portrayed as a man that is full of faith in Jesus. He gets lots of things right as he follows Christ. But at other times, he's portrayed as a complete failure, totally missing what Jesus is trying to get him to learn and to follow. And as we follow along with Peter, he actually teaches us what it looks like to follow Jesus in our own lives. Because like Peter, some days we get it and other times we don't. Some days we answer correctly and other days we stick our foot in our mouths. Peter reminds us that following Jesus is a process. It's a process. It's a journey that we are on our entire lives. Nobody ever arrives this side of heaven in the Christian life. We're all in process. And that's encouraging because it means that we shouldn't be surprised if we experience setbacks. We shouldn't be surprised if we experience discouragement or even failures. The question for us as we follow Jesus as we're in process is what do we do with those discouragements? What do we do with those failures that we've experienced? And by looking at the life of Peter, we see that Jesus is patient with us. He's patient with our failures. He never gives up on us. He is always with us, inviting us to follow him. Always with us. And in our passage this morning, what we see is Peter in one of his better moments. Just hold on till next week. This morning, we see him in one of his better moments. After having followed Jesus for almost two years, witnessing his teaching and his miracles, Jesus turns to his disciples And he asks them a very important question, a simple but important question. It's a question that everyone needs to answer. And whether you claim to be a follower of Jesus this morning or not, Jesus turns to you and he wants you to answer this question this morning. And it's a question that, depending on how you answer it, impacts your entire life. To see the question that Jesus asks his disciples, let's read Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, this is God's word. Let's pray to him before we look at it and consider it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you are one who calls us to yourself, thankful for the way that you give us your words of life so that we might know 
um, who you are and what you have done in our lives and in this world. We pray this morning that we would see those things clearly and that you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been a part of a focus group. Focus groups are often assembled by companies or politicians to test out a product or a message on real random people. And the point of a focus group is to determine how people are responding to a certain message or to a certain product. What they think about things. Companies and politicians actually come and they spend lots of money uh, on, on focus groups and they use the findings of these groups to really shape their product or to shape their message going forward. They use these groups to determine what people want, what people like. These groups provide valuable information to companies and politicians as they craft their products or messages. I remember being a part of a focus group a few years back. I was at the mall and a candy company was there standing in the mall trying to recruit people for a focus group. And they cornered me and they had me fill out some demographic information. And then they took me to a back room with other people And in that room, they had unlabeled candy laying out on the table. Sounds a little sketchy, I realize, even saying it out loud. Um, But each of us came and we sampled this candy and we gave the company our opinion and impression of the taste. And then after a little while, they brought out different packaging options for these candies. They wanted to know how we'd respond or react to the candy packaging. Uh, was the color appealing? Was the font the right size? Was the package eye-catching, they wanted to know. And it was a fun experience to be a part of this focus group. Uh, I remember that people had some strong opinions about the taste of this particular candy and the look of the packaging. As you might imagine, folks weren't shy about expressing their thoughts on, on the product And this was good because this is what the company wanted. They wanted to know how people felt about things. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus wants to know how people really feel about his ministry. He's curious about what people are saying about him. In a sense, he turns to his personal focus group, his disciples, and he asks what people are saying. And from the response, it seems like there's no shortage of opinions on the topic. People are ready and willing to tell these disciples what they think. And this passage is the first instance where we see Jesus ask his disciples about himself in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them to explain what they've been hearing as they've been around the crowds following him. And the question that Jesus asks his disciples in this passage This morning is the very question that he wants to ask each one of us. How you answer the question Jesus asks this morning will change your life in one way or another. And I don't think I'm being overly dramatic when I say that how you answer this question is the most important one that you'll ever answer. Maybe you've been around the church your entire life. Maybe you've witnessed the best and the worst of what the church has to offer. Maybe you're excited about following Jesus this morning, but maybe some of you are here and you're a bit skeptical. You're not quite sure what you think about Jesus or what he claims to be. And no matter where you are in the process this morning, you can answer no bigger question than the one Jesus looks at us and asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Look, the way you answer that question has an effect on what you choose to do for the rest of your life. 
What you think about Jesus is going to influence the type of parent you are, the type of spouse you are. It'll shape the attitude you have towards helping other people. It'll change the way you decide to spend and to give your money and your resources. The way you answer this question makes a huge difference in your relationships. What you believe about Jesus is going to affect who you decide to marry. It's going to affect who you spend time with. It's going to affect how you raise your kids. The way you answer this question matters when you experience grief in life. And when a loved one dies unexpectedly, or when a relative is diagnosed with cancer and is only given a short time to live, when things come crashing down and life is not working the way that you expected it to work, the way you answer this question is going to impact how you move forward in the midst of grief. The way you answer this question will also change the way you think about yourself. When you fall into that same struggle over and over again, when you say something about another person you wish you hadn't, when you are found out by your spouse or a friend and you're scared that your reputation is ruined, how you answer this question can either lead you into further self-doubt and guilt or it can lead you into freedom and forgiveness. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? This isn't a Sunday school question. It's a question that matters for all of your life, your relationships, your vocation, your grief, your self-image. Who is Jesus? What's your answer? Or to put it another way, what's your confession this morning? This morning, we see different answers to this question from this passage. We see how different people respond to Jesus' question. And we're going to look at this passage under three quick headings this morning. First, we see an incomplete confession. Second, we see a true confession. And then lastly, we'll spend just a few minutes talking about where this confession leads. Okay? First, let's spend a few minutes looking at this incomplete confession. In our passage... Jesus is traveling with his disciples like he often does, and he takes his disciples up to the northernmost part of Israel. It's a city called Caesarea Philippi, and the city is on the border of Israel and the Gentile territory to the north. It's a city that's predominantly made up of Syrians and Greeks, full of religious people, but these people wouldn't necessarily claim to follow the God of the Bible. So Jesus takes these people, uh, his disciples, up to this region. And in fact, it was a city that was known for its worship, Caesarea Philippi was. It was a religious melting pot of the day. In this city, there are historical records that show that it had many temples. One temple to the Syrian god Baal. One temple to the Greek god Pan. Another temple that had recently been erected at this point in time to the emperor, Caesar. And so it's against this backdrop, Jesus takes his disciples to the city and he turns and he asks them an important question in verse 13. He says, who do people say that the son of man is? Jesus here is referring to himself in the third person, basically looking at his disciples saying, who are folks saying that I am? What are people saying about me? And the response that Jesus gets is pretty spectacular. Those who've encountered Jesus definitely have an opinion about who he is. After all, Jesus has been doing some amazing things. He's been casting out demons. He's been performing miracles. He's been teaching as one with authority. And people are amazed and they're trying to make sense of who Jesus is and what this ministry means. 
And the disciples have had their finger on the pulse of what people are saying about Jesus. And they tell them, tell him what they've been hearing out and about in verse 14. They say, some say you're John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah. Some are saying Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And we've got to understand that this is a pretty amazing confession that these people are giving. It's obvious that Jesus is getting people serious attention. In all four of these answers that the disciples give, Jesus is one of the greatest figures of the near or or distant past. Some even believe that he was a prophet of old who'd been raised from the dead and come back to life somehow. It's amazing things that Jesus was doing. These were impressive confessions. Jesus was extraordinary in almost everyone's eyes. But while Jesus was extraordinary, we see in the passage that he wasn't really necessary. He was extraordinary, but he wasn't really necessary to these people. After all, look at all the other options they had in their religious melting pot, in their pluralistic culture. And I think things haven't really changed much in how people think of Jesus today. We also live in a culture where religious pluralism reigns. People in our culture are deeply spiritual and religious. And there's lots of different temples at which we're given the option to worship in. And these temples, they try, they come and they try to convince us that Jesus, while spectacular, he's amazing, isn't really necessary. What are some of the common temples that we see in our context here in Northwest San Antonio? Well, I think we see the temple of materialism. It's all about how much you can accumulate. The toys, the house, the cars, the vacations, the bank account. And we'll sacrifice our health and our family and our integrity to worship in this temple. You look around and we see the temple of competence. It's all about success in your vocation, whether it be in an office building or on the floor at home with your kids. It's about having your life together in all areas, relationally and spiritually and financially and emotionally. It's about never letting people see that you're in need, never letting people know that you don't know what you're doing. We see the temple of comfort and control all around us, crafting the life you want, making sure that everything is in place, manipulating our kids to behave, never putting yourself in uncomfortable relationships or situations. It's all about maximum comfort and maintaining control on how life works. And as long as we're worshiping at these temples, as long as we're getting what we need from these gods, then we can get along just fine with a less than complete answer about who Jesus is. In fact, as long as you're getting what you need from these other gods in your life, there's really no felt need to confess Jesus as the true God at all. And that's a spiritually dangerous place to be to be lulled to sleep, to be apathetic about this question that Jesus wants to ask us. When Jesus is just one option among many in our lives, it leads to incomplete confessions about who he really is. Who's Jesus? For lots of people, he's spectacular, but not necessary. He's a great moral teacher, or he's a miracle worker. He's an example for us to follow. Question is, is that all he is? I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, Mere Christianity. It's printed for you at the very beginning of your bulletin when he said this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we've looked at this incomplete confession and how they shape and form our lives and how we're prone to to fall into that. Now let's turn and take a look at what a true confession looks like. Jesus turns and he asks the question in a more personal, pointed way to his disciples. He wants to know what they think personally. He zeroes in on Peter and he asks them a question in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And it's important to know that in the original language, the personal pronoun, pronoun you is the, is the word that's emphasized here. Jesus has heard what others think. Now he wants to know what those closest to him think. Notice Peter's strong, straightforward answer in verse 16. He doesn't say, I think you're the Christ. He, he doesn't say, for us, you're the Christ. No, he says, You're the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a strong, solid answer. Peter almost states it like it's settled truth in his mind. And by calling Jesus the Christ, it's important to know that Peter isn't simply saying Jesus' name. It's not like you saying Michael Novak. Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was a title. It was a royal title. Uh, Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It literally means the anointed one, a royal figure. So anytime you see Christ, the word Christ in the New Testament, if you replace that word with the word king, you'd be getting at the right meaning. Christ the king, Jesus the king. And if you stop and think about it, this confession is amazing. Because up to this point, Jesus has not explicitly told his disciples that he's the Christ. He's never said that up to this point in Matthew. Instead, he was doing things that would be expected of the Christ, and the disciples began to slowly but surely perceive who he was. They weren't told explicitly. They began to implicitly come to this conclusion after having been with him. And this highlights a really important point as we think about those in our lives who don't yet follow Jesus. And it's that people need to be given time to make a true confession. Sometimes it doesn't come quickly. More often, it takes someone investigating Jesus for years. Even the disciples came to a gradual conclusion about who Jesus is. They're not not necessarily even firm about what he's going to do yet. We'll talk about that next week. They're kind of realizing who he is, but they don't yet understand what that means. We should allow people to be with Jesus for a while. Not forcing an immediate decision. We also see from this passage that a true confession that recognizing Jesus as king is a gift. It's a gift. We see this gift in verse 17 when Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Look, this confession isn't something that Peter learned from his father. He had to learn it from his father in heaven, not his earthly father. It was given as a gift by God. 
And it's interesting to stop and think for just a minute about this, about Peter and Judas side by side. Uh, Remember that the confession that each of them made, remember Judas is one who betrays Jesus. He renounces him as the Christ and Peter embraces Jesus and confesses and proclaims him as the Christ. And both men received the same teaching. Both men saw the same miracles. Both men had their feet washed by the same man. Yet one is faithful and the other isn't. Why is that? Well, because it's not about something inside of them. It's a gift that God grants. Belief is a gift. It's important that we never forget this. That a true confession, that being able to recognize Jesus is a gift. This is important so that we stay humble. And Jesus wants a humble church. One that recognizes it wasn't because of our character. It wasn't because of our religious sensitivity or our sincerity or our openness that brought us to recognize Jesus as king. If we see Jesus as king this morning, it's only because God has given us the gift of spiritual sight, the gift of faith. It's nothing we did. It's all a gift. Heard a story this past week about a wife and her husband And the husband happened to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He and his wife were on a road trip about to leave the city together. And before leaving town, they stopped in at a full-service gas station. And the husband went in to get some things for the road. And the wife stayed outside as the car was being pumped with gas. And upon coming out, the husband noticed that his wife had struck up a conversation with the gas station attendant. And the husband came to find out that his wife actually went to school with this particular man and that she had even dated this guy pretty seriously during high school. Well, they say goodbye, they get back on the road, and after a few minutes of silence, the CEO turns uh, to his wife and asks, I bet I know what you're thinking. You're glad that you found me, aren't you? Aren't you glad you married me? What would your life look like if you'd married that man? To which she quickly responded, if I'd married that man, he'd have been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, And you'd be a gas station attendant. It's pretty funny, but it's a picture of how we often think of our relationship with God. We think, isn't God lucky to have me? Aren't you so glad that I chose you? You're blessed to have such a gifted servant who really gets it, Lord. But if we have, but if we, if we think that we've got it all backwards, because we're the blessed ones. We're the ones who desperately need God. He's the one who makes us whole. We don't make him whole in any way. He comes and he makes us whole. Never the other way around. Truth be told, we wouldn't even consider him unless he'd first drawn us by his grace. If you confess Jesus as Christ this morning, then praise God for his gift. What a miracle. I mean, it should cause us to worship and praise God for his love and his mercy towards us if we recognize Jesus as Christ. So we see that a, what a true confession looks like and how it happens. Let's turn and just spend a few minutes, just a few, looking at what Jesus does with this confession. So Jesus promises to build a new community of people that will uh, be founded upon this confession that Peter gives. This new community, Jesus calls the church here in Matthew. And it's interesting that this word is only used three times in all of the gospels. Church, ecclesia, here in chapter 16 and twice in chapter 18. And it's a word that refers to a group of people. It's not a building. It's not programs. It's a group of people. 
Jesus here is promising to gather and to build up a group of people, a group of followers that will follow him as their king. A group of people that have a purpose and a mission in this world of making this true confession known to everybody that they meet. As an aside, I just need to point this out, I think, especially in our context. It's important to know that this is one of the more discussed passages in all the New Testament. A little theology aside here uh, for those that are interested. The discussion centers around um, what Jesus means when he says, On this rock I will build my church. What is the rock upon which Jesus promises to build his church? Is it Peter himself or is it the confession that Peter makes? That's the question. And this question has divided Catholics and Protestants for centuries. The Catholic Church looks at this passage and believes that Jesus is establishing an office, one that's passed down through centuries and is given to the bishop at Rome, the Pope, who's in the direct line or succession of Peter. They believe Jesus is promising to build his church on this office, this man. While Protestants come, And even many church, early church fathers come and they taught that Jesus is promising here to build his church upon the confession that Peter just gave. Make sense? In other words, it's not Peter as a person that's primary. It's the confession that he spoke, that Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock upon which Jesus promises to build his church. This morning, we don't really have time to examine these differences in depth. But I do want to say I think we can recognize and honor Peter's place in the early church. He is highly honored, given an important part to play historically. But we also recognize that it's Peter's confession that gets the attention of Jesus. Just a few verses later, Peter's being called Satan by Jesus. Not a very good start for the Pope. And it's upon this confession... That Jesus promises to build the church, not this man necessarily. It's Christ who builds his church. It's him who's the leader of his church. Christ-centeredness is the point here. The confession is the rock upon which the church is built. And as we close, I want us to notice just two quick things. I promise they're quick about this confessing church that Jesus promises to build. First, I want you to notice the certainty of what Jesus promises to build. Jesus does not say, I might build my church. He doesn't say, let's wait and see who comes to this group of people. He doesn't say, it's 50-50 at this point. We're going to have to see how you guys shape up in order to see if this church is going to be built. No, it's certain. And Jesus even tells Peter in verse 18 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In other words, the people Jesus is gathering to himself are going to be a powerful force called to be on the offensive, to take over death in Satan himself. Second, I want you to see the authority behind the message we proclaim as God's people. Jesus in verse 19 promises to give the keys of the kingdom to his church, What does that mean? Well, what do keys do? They open and they lock doors. To loose something is to open it, and to bind something is to close it. And in this passage, Jesus is giving the church a job to do. To open and close the doors of the kingdom of heaven to the world. How does this happen? How are these doors open and closed by the church, by this group of people? Well, the doors are open and closed as we proclaim the gospel. 
As we take this confession out to the world, the doors of the kingdom of heaven are open and closed to those who hear our message. We proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And then the kingdom is open to some, and they come in, but it's closed to others. Those who reject this confession that we proclaim. And this is because the gospel is a polarizing truth. When people hear it, they're either softened or they're hardened. When people hear it, some are let in and some are shut out. When people hear it, our message is a fragrance of life to some and a fragrance of death to others. And it's the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel. To go out and to open the doors of the kingdom to any who would come in and confess Jesus as Christ. To invite people in. Our calling is to take this gospel message to all who will listen. And we see that the authority of heaven is behind our work. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Jesus, God himself, stands behind the church in their message that they take out to this world. The church isn't just another organization. It's not just another group of people. It's got the backing of God himself. The church is heaven's representative on earth. It's Christ's body. It's the hope of the world. Given the task of taking this confession that Jesus is king to all the world. And if people are going to experience the kingdom of God in northwest San Antonio... If people are going to experience the kingdom of God in your workplace, if your children are going to experience the kingdom of God as they grow up, if people are going to hear of Jesus' love and forgiveness, if people are going to be renewed and restored, it's going to be by this group of people that Jesus is establishing. It's going to be because of you and me following Jesus' call on our lives and taking this confession to all that we know. A group of people who know the answer to the question Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning that you are Christ, you are King, and we are thankful that you have called us to yourself, that you have given us the ability and the gift to be able to make that confession. We thank you for the work that you have called us to, to take this message, this confession out to the entire world. And we pray this morning that your spirit would empower us to do just that. That we would be those that take this this good news out to those who desperately need to hear it. And we pray that you would give us great blessing as we do so. In Christ's name, amen.